Things Fall Apart, It's Scientific, is a line from the Talking Heads song, Wild Life. Like most Talking Heads songs, including the one from which the This Must Be The Place podcast takes its name, the lyrics are a bit bookish. Things Fall Apart, It's Scientific, and Wild Life seem to be references, ones I haven't actually fact-checked, to popular scientific accounts from the mid-20th century, theorising the trajectory of the universe and of life in it. Entropy, or the second rule of thermodynamics, refers to the, quote, general trend of the universe toward death and disorder. And in 1944's What is Life, Schrodinger put forward the idea that life itself is a kind of negative entropy machine, defined by a temporary state of order from disorder. Aside from sometimes passing on copies of our DNA, however, the ends of our own lives are as apparently inevitable as that of the universe. Meanwhile, and despite this cheerful thought, Our lives are temporarily put together from bits and pieces, material and digital. People attempt at various times to curate, purge, hoard, systematise or selectively narrate piles of memories and things and files. Friends and relatives might do the same for us after we pass away. Music and the changing technologies through which music is created and duplicated forms one part of this. In This Is Your Brain on Music, Daniel Leviden writes about how music can connect people to times and places long after their more practical memories have faded. Side note, the music we remember the most vividly tends to be from when we are 14 years old. I was not 14 years old, but I remember the first time I heard the Talking Heads song, This Must Be The Place, because it was on the soundtrack to the film Wall Street, which I watched on a rented VHS tape in 2001 before I first travelled to the United States. David Byrne of Talking Heads has gone on to discuss at some length the effects of a century of changing music technology in his book, How Music Works. The study of technology and media as part of the social and historical record is not new. In coining the term, the medium is the message, Marshall McLuhan in 1964 proposed, communication medium itself, not the messages it carries, should be the primary focus of study. The spread of radio and records is central to Ken Burns' history of country music. Previously, Songs were reproduced and adapted through live performances. The Carter family's canonical early recorded songs were said to have been, quote, captured rather than written. But what of the music so many people now record themselves, and which does not form part of the broader popular or cultural memory? How do people give order to their own songs and recorded music and associated lives over the course of decades, during which mediums for recording and sharing music have come and gone and changed fundamentally? The topic has been more in my mind in conversations of late in light of the recent death from motor neuron disease of an old friend of my husband, Andrew, Bo. Two decades ago, in the early 2000s, Bo and Andrew and others, under the guise of several band names, but including the Carryover Champions, spent years writing and recording music together. They jammed and recorded in a garage in Deer Park in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and later in a warehouse they lived in in the Melbourne CBD. They never played live except for one performance of a single song. Keeping the band in the garage was for disputed reasons, but at least one account is that they wanted the songs to be really finished before they played them in public. Some of these songs I know because Andrew has continued to play parts of them, as lyrics or melodies, in a kind of second life, as catchy earworms re-recorded and reworked over subsequent decades. Some of them were also things people intended to return to. Both Andrew and Bo went on to be in bands with some commercial success, and wider audiences, but considered these early songs to be unfinished business of sorts. At the time his friend was dying, Andrew found one copy of some recordings of the early 2000s songs on a burnt CD. 
This one known surviving CD wouldn't play in several players, not to mention the fact that most people no longer even have a CD player. Eventually an external drive with the right adapter was found that connected to a computer to enable digital copies to be made. But you can't always find, let alone access, the recordings you once set down on CD. The same is true of old cassette tapes, VHS, master DVDs, hard drives, flash drives, and defunct websites and clouds of various descriptions. There are extremes to navigate, of what to make and what to keep. On the one hand, you might have only one copy of a song, perhaps sitting in a box alongside other ephemera like band posters. On the other hand, you might have hundreds or thousands of physical copies of CDs that lurk unsold, cluttering your cupboards. Maybe you also put your music out through digital distribution servers, but these too are contingent on maintaining subscription fees and logins. Even in putting together this episode, I struggled to source internet versions of some of my own songs that are, or at least were, out there somewhere on the internet. The archiving and curation of our own content is contingent on constantly changing technologies and mediums which, whatever the latest futuristic promises, are as fallible and as ephemeral as the material world. The digital realm, meanwhile, both constantly expands and declines into chaos. In the following, I've put together a bit of a rough chronology of the different technologies for recording and sharing music that I've used over the 1980s to 2020s, or my lifetime. I've included some examples of songs where I could find them, which is its own story, and where I own the copyright. It's kind of amazing that this window of opportunity is open for life to go beyond earth. And when our bodies are long gone... Radio. I grew up in Ballarat, and the earliest recorded song I can remember enjoying was Dancing on the Ceiling played on local commercial radio, 3BA, and heard in the back of the family Conovan. I can remember another local radio host in the late 1980s, I guess, proudly and with the same futuristic pride as announcing the man on the moon, saying that the song you just heard was recorded on compact disc. Ballarat also has community radio, at the time 3BBB, and sometime in the mid-1990s I remember listening late at night and recording a song from radio to cassette tape. I still have no idea who the band was or the name of the song. It's possible even the band has forgotten about it. But for whatever reason, we made a cassette recording, and I still remember the lyrics. Sit beside the fire, something, something, something. It will come to me in time, it will come. That was at least part of it. Often with radio, listeners, and especially teenagers, had no context or idea whether bands were local or national, old or new. Radio is curation, and to some extent, and at some points in your life, you just tune in to whatever is included. Andrew also has a song about remembering this relationship to radio and to tape, of songs coming out of the ether, when you would quote, Stay up and talk and tape things off the radio. He would wait for anything, quote, not mainstream to come on, oxymoronically, Melbourne commercial radio stations, waiting to hear and faithfully record to tape, for example, Small Victory by Faith No More, inane introductions and all. He was 14 years old. Decades later, playing in local bands, there was and is always a thrill from being played on community radio, like Triple R and PBS in Melbourne. The best part 
is imagining that maybe your song might have the same random effect on even one listener like that 1990s teenager with the tape recorder. Radio listeners don't have to seek you out or click on your links. However amazingly open the internet is and may be, this choice has generally meant that there's billions of songs out there that people mainly listen a billion times to a handful of songs. Community radio is curation of a different kind. For stations with interested listeners, a few people might happen upon otherwise random songs and connect to them, or otherwise they simply tolerate the host's eclectic playlists. Only a few weeks ago, someone messaged me to report that the Triple R host had played our 2017 song about Elon Musk, a song about the fantasy of technological immortality and how quickly bold ideas go off. I think the host played it because of a dislike of Elon Musk, but still. It's kind of amazing that this window of opportunity is open for life to go beyond Earth. When our bodies are long gone A piece of us may carry on Tiny Polaroids of DNA In a spaceship heading off to Mars With the proceeds of electric
green light that recedes before me year by year. It's a planet with my bones in an in rear view mirrors. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust in Elon Musk. We trust. wake up in the morning and think that that's, that's what's happening. Reel-to-reel and cassette tape. Our parents used to have a reel-to-reel four-track recorder that used, I think, quarter-inch or half-inch tape stored in wide, flat boxes. The original purpose had probably been for recording choir practices of the 1980s, but in the 1990s I know my older brother used it to record his high school death metal band. The player occasionally splutters to life, although the motor seems to have failed, meaning it runs out of speed. There's something rewarding about inducing a machine like this to play old media. But usually, those boxes of tapes sit there blindly. They aren't labelled, and if they are, they've more often than not been taped over. I've looked at online forums a few times with a view to fixing the reel-to-reel player up, both to listen back and to record on this analogue format again, but the typical advice is that Quote, Unfortunately, these old machines will be poorly maintained and largely knackered by now. The confronting thing is that these old tapes may stay more stable, or at least more easily readable, than some of the other formats that have followed. At high school, I once won a Cassingle version of PM Dawn's Set Adrift on Memory Bliss, a prize ostensibly for the best rendition of the Nutbush dance. And we used to listen to Graceland by Paul Simon on repeat in the car cassette deck on trips between Ballarat and Castlemaine. Slowly, lines like, She comes back to tell me she's gone, as if I didn't know that, which we used to think were hilariously stupid, came to reveal their sad adult weight. Cassette tapes were big in the 1980s and 1990s. You used to pay actual money for commercial cassettes, but their utility was also that you could, with a few crude modifications, record over the top and create mixed tapes of your own. Like most people, we had a small portable tape recorder that enabled voice recording as well as from radio or vinyl onto cassette. Some of these tapes still sit in boxes in my shed, with obscure sticker labels and bits of tape coming out, threatening to tangle and further obscure whatever indication of old songs, chatter and old travels is discernible behind the hiss. The mixed tape is well known and fondly recalled by many. It was a way of curating and introducing people to music and to your own tastes. You couldn't easily skip tracks. It's the way I first heard a lot of music, for example as compiled by my older sister of Melbourne bands like the Luxmiths, or sometimes by a tape sent by International Post, of 1990s Britpop bands. I didn't know who any of them were, but still had an expectation of how certain largely unrelated songs should follow each other. Ode to My Family by the Cranberries, for example, in relation to The Size of a Cow by The Wonder Stuff. Cassettes were also part of technological changes throughout the 1980s and 1990s impacting recording and the music business. The arrival of affordable, portable, multi-track recorders and mixers, particularly the Tascam Porter Studio, in 1982 was critical to the songwriting and early recordings of bands such as The Smiths, Jesus and Mary Chain, and In Excess. 
Recording to cassette enabled unsigned musicians to record and develop their own material outside of incredibly expensive studios. The cost of studio time declined as the possibilities for home recording increased. By the late 1980s, major labels were becoming both less necessary and more powerful. Bruce Springsteen famously recorded his album Nebraska on a four-track Tazcan. Andrew owned one in the late 1990s and says it was his first foray into home recording. Home analogue recording was made possible and widespread by the Tazcam from the 1980s, and home digital recording became possible and common from the early 2000s. By both means, analogue and digital, more and more home music has been recorded. I left Ballarat in 1997, but we later recorded a song about Ballarat and leaving it. I'll love you forever, Ballarat, but I'm leaving anyway. Later, in 1997, I was in Nimbin and was given a taped copy of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. I still have the slightly melted tape in the car whose tape player doesn't work anymore. Our song about the town Ballarat was recorded at a home studio in 2008, digitally and released on CD. But there's something a little mixtape or cassette about the afterlife of that song. I've met a handful of people who had no context for it but who had it passed on to them because it referenced Ballarat and perhaps they'd moved there. Someone once even painted a mural in Ballarat based broadly on the lyrics, when the warm wind blows from the north. I like that idea of a circuit between place, song, context, no context, and in place again. Thank you.
TV VHS Later Max. One of the first songs I remember being really struck by was via analogue television on a documentary which included a performance by Bob Dylan of Don't Think Twice, It's Alright, with the line, I'm a thinking and a wondering, walking down the road, I once loved a woman, a child I'm told, I gave her my heart but she wanted my soul, but don't think twice, it's alright. At which point I turned to my sister Sarah in amazement. She was doing the same thing, and we both said, What was that? And like many Australians of the 1990s, we used to watch Rage, a late-night curated assortment of music videos. Often we would record our favourites to analogue video cassettes, VHS or Video Home System, to watch again on repeat. Andrew studied media production. For a while, he made wedding videos for a living and says he and his friend once made a film clip to one of their songs at Deer Park Station, sometime in the early 2000s, recorded on a camcorder. No one knows where that videotape is, and if they did, it would prove challenging to track down a VHS player. For work recently, I had cause to access an old VHS recording of a documentary. It was possible to digitise it, but by no means simple. It's the realm of librarians and of family history enthusiasts many of whom previously transferred older formats, like Super 8, to VHS. Betamax was the higher quality version of a videotape. To get a film clip played on Rage, you needed to send in a Betamax version of your film clip to the ABC. In the mid-2000s, Ken Coben, the band that Andrew was in that was on a label, Half a Cow, and had some commercial success, did this and did get played on Rage, at least once, is all Andrew can say. The smaller band I was in at the time, Because We Can, also somehow made a Betamax version of a homemade film clip, which we sent in, or I think we did, maybe it was too expensive, but which wasn't played. Of that song itself, I can't easily find a copy, but it was written when we were still teenagers, with the then ironic but now largely descriptive lyrics, I am not young, I'm dying, I'm dying. I can't easily find either the lyrics, the recording, or the film clip. It might well be in the shed or shoebox alongside VHS recordings of weddings. There's a certain vintage to that past, like diaries, that teeters between curiosity and discomfort. MP3s on burnt CDs. When I lived in Canberra in the early 2000s, it was a time when people, and honestly I can't quite remember who, used to give me burnt CDs of ripped MP3s of various degrees of illegality before legal downloading or streaming services existed. The reign of MP3s on tinny devices, or, quote, crappy sound forever, as David Byrne terms it, began around this time. Napster's illegal downloading service started in 1999. Sarah once sent me a burnt copy in the mail of Augie March, an Augie March album. Someone else gave me a vaguely labelled CD full of several albums of American bands for whom I had no context or mental image. I used to listen to that CD on my work computer, late in a quiet Canberra office, at a time before you could so easily, for better and worse, work from home. Included on this CD were songs I now know to be by Interpol, Fountains of Wayne and The Shins, including the song New Slang, released in 2001. The song was later featured in the movie Garden State, which I haven't seen, but with one character instructing someone to listen to it because, quote, 
this song will change your life. Predictably enough, perhaps it has, both mine and Andrew's. The first line of new slang is, Gold teeth and a curse for this town were all in my mouth. Only I don't know how they got out, dear. They were apparently written resentfully by James Mercer about the small band scene in Albuquerque. From one small band scene to another. Around 2003, Sarah and I started playing songs live, initially at open mics, including at the Empress Hotel in North Fitzroy, and later working to organise gigs at small venues, mainly in the inner north of Melbourne. At that time, live music went along with recording CDs. When I met Andrew, it was at a party in 2005, hosted by a local musician behind a shop on Brunswick Road. Someone, specifically Dan, who I met because he was a studio engineer when we recorded some songs for a demo CD, suggested that our unfortunately named band Because We Can might be able to get on a lineup of some shows with the band of some friends of his, Ken Coben. Ken Coben, the band which Andrew was then playing lap steel and guitar in, was playing at the party. When I first met Andrew, our main point of discussion was a song we had both heard on a CD of burnt MP3s, New Slang. Andrew, too, had heard new slang on Burnt CD, out of context, played on repeat. He saw the Shins play in Melbourne with his friend, who has since passed away, and only at his funeral this year, remembered Bo shouting at him over the inevitable sing-along to new slang. I came here to hear them sing, not you. recorded CDs and the master. When I started writing songs and performing live music at pubs in Melbourne in the early 2000s, producing and selling CDs of different degrees of informality went hand in hand with live gigs. I don't recall ever seriously considering the possibility of being signed to a label. But while Andrew had spent earlier years in garage bands and learning home recording, he was, by around 2005, in a band on an independent label, Half a Cow. Can Coben played live around Melbourne in bigger shows, toured interstate, and got some mainstream press coverage. Some of the studios that recorded in were high pressure, higher cost affairs, where musicians tried to get tracks down in a budgeted period and to have a certain studio sound. For a much lower profile band like Because We Can, the timelines and locations were more ad hoc but some form of studio was the main way to record. I think we typically spent a day at the studio, paying for the space and the engineer. Through one of these studios where Sarah and I paid for recording, Bakehouse, we met Dan, who introduced us to Ken Coben and in turn, me to Andrew. To make a CD at that time, you typically paid someone to record and mix, and someone else to master the tracks. Mastering, by the way, is a frankly mysterious process by which a finished audio track is compressed and otherwise technically fiddled with in order to sound the right level of loud on the maximum number of devices. The master CD was then given, along with artwork files, to a company that either replicated or duplicated the product. Replication of CDs meant a direct copy of the master and higher quality for the audio purists. It also meant a minimum print run of around 500 CDs. Sarah and I never did it, both for the cost and for the fear of never offloading that many CDs. Duplication meant a less fancy version of copying the audio files and could have print runs of around 100 or 200. 
We did this recording and duplicating albums to CD a few times as Because We Can and later as Taylor Project. The most common way for us to sell CDs was at live shows and especially at CD launches. At a CD launch you might sell 50 or so copies. We sold them for about $10 which didn't really cover the cost of producing them. At other shows perhaps 5 or 10 people would buy a CD later. Eventually, most of the CDs from the mid-2000s to the mid-2010s were sold, and somewhere out there are those CDs, a handful remaining in my own shed, and more than a few, I imagine, in landfill somewhere. The other day I visited someone's house for dinner and saw a, so a pile of CDs from the 2000s, including, I noted, Interpol, mouldering on the back porch, seemingly at a loss of where to be. Because we can, started off playing at open mics, and later at gigs. There was a certain slog to that side of it, Sometimes we were in the same lineup as other bands like Clinkerfield, who regularly played bigger shows at pubs in Melbourne. Through the Cancoban Clinkerfield connection around 2006, I travelled on a hot March long weekend to what was then to me an obscure country town, Colbunabin or Colbu. The experience of feeling like a walk-in role in a long-running small-town drama underscored a song which became a standard for us in the later band, Taylor Project, formed in 2008. Small Town's lyrics seem to mean different things to different people. We once met a New Yorker who said he left New York over a finished relationship, because after all, New York is a small town too. In music, small towns of various descriptions are critical to songs, to bands and relationships formations, and eventually to questions of who maintains your back catalogue. On the one hand, Cancoban broke up, around 2011, over 10 years ago, but their three albums are all still available via Half a Cow. Andrew later wrote and recorded the song, Our Last Song, about the experience of spending, quote, so much time spent here on this stage, with a set of people, and then not doing that. Like most songs recorded under the name Because We Can, which ran from 2003 to 2006, the only copies I can think of of the songs we wrote and recorded in that time are on a handful of CDs in my shed. I didn't bother to fish them out for this, at least not yet, and I was trying to Google the songs but there's no digital trace of our band having existed. Or if there is, it's overshadowed by a Bon Jovi song, Because We Can. Small Town, meanwhile, recorded a few years later, and in the era of digital releases and YouTube, is both easier to keep track of and a song that we're still singing. <laughs> Friends 
Everyone 
Home recorded CDs. I started playing live music around 2003, or 20 years ago. From roughly 2003 to 2016 or so, so a period of around 13 years, playing live at venues went hand in hand with making and selling CDs. In the earlier part of this period, studios were more prevalent, but in the later part this switched to home recording. In 2007, I co-purchased an old hall in country Victoria and just up the road from Colbo. One of Clinkerfield's memorable songs has a line about Sign says, Elmore! We formed a different pan- band, also ill-named, haphazardly this time, Taylor Project, in around 2007-2008. We recorded albums to CD, mostly in Elmore, in 2008, 2010, 2011, 2015. Either with engineers who bought their own gear, or with Andrew with his own home recording setup. Andrew has also recorded his own three albums at home, as Hook Turns. Hook Turns is a duo, but Andrew records and mixes the material. Over time, digital recording and mixing at home has become both widespread and affordable. I won't go into more of the boring details, but essentially, with a mix of hardware and software, a computer, audio capture hardware like an Eddie Roll with multiple inputs, a few mics and leads, and some software, either licensed or unlicensed, or later, open source. Many people have become experts at digital home recording and mixing. Andrew typically records and mixes 20 or so tracks, recorded track by track. Only the mastering process has tended to still be done in specialised settings, and the technicians remain the best paid part of the home recording equation. Some of these CDs have taken on lives of their own, often in someone else's car. I've heard people say they know Taylor Project songs inside out because the CD was the soundtrack to a road trip or a breakup. The same thing has happened to Andrew's CDs. In one family we know, a teenager incongruously knows all the words to one of Andrew's Hook Turns albums, basically because that's the only CD in the car and streaming services drop out on long trips.
Because we can, approximately 2003 to 2006, but I can't really ask Google, we used to have our own HTML site with MP3s uploaded to it. We also had a MySpace profile and maybe some other early social media and music sharing sites, I forget which. Whatever version of the internet and social media existed in the mid-2000s isn't easily retrieved or reconstructed, even if you're inclined to the task. Things from that era are in a grey zone of being neither solidly analogue nor really digitised, like the grainy photos from the earliest phone cameras. Facebook became important in 2007 or 2008, and still functions, creepily enough, to remind me of things from that far ago. It used to be a site for social connection and constant conversation. Those days are gone. The Taylor Project still has a Facebook profile, and many of us still only have Facebook largely to invite people to our gigs. The first social media sites grow strange and old and more rarely visited. There are new sites, TikTok, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Twitter, X, Instagram, others no doubt. Sometimes I get coaxed onto them, but not always. Whatever is new now will be old in a couple of years. Many of Taylor Project's songs are based on speculating about other people's lives, based on found objects. Curiosity, also known as morbid curiosity. Like Bacteria, a song based on the book Wisconsin Death Trip, itself a grotesque assembly of 1890s newspaper articles and old photos. Photographs are efforts to capture memories of people before they die. In Wisconsin Death Trip, the medium was used to capture photos of people just after they died. Susan Sontag argued photography still has this function, that photography has a, quote, chronic voyeuristic relation to the world. Audio... Storytelling and songtelling skirts the same territory. When I first went to the US in 2001, I landed in Detroit, a city hollowed out by the departure of the car industry. I don't have an audio reference for it except for my memories of an incongruous monorail skidding around the bombsite-like car parks and the South African accent of the woman who shared my flop house meets youth hostel room for a few days and who often started sentences by saying, Well, I'm an MD. And no, I can't do a South African accent. To wait for an infrequent Amtrak train to Chicago, I stayed at a dingy hostel that also housed long-term residents. One of them, an elderly Hispanic man apparently, had died some days before I arrived. No one noticed his death until I mentioned at the bar downstairs that it smells like someone died up there. The man's remains were later wheeled out into the hot summer street. It was a lens into American lives and geography for me, but also became an anecdote, as it is again now. I sometimes think I should try to revisit that time and place and the unknown man's death with more reflection. It is in hindsight that I notice the crossovers with Detroit musician Sixto Rodriguez, subject of 2012 film Searching for Sugar Man. To quote the film synopsis, though he faded into obscurity in the US, an early 1970s musician known as Rodriguez became a huge hit in South Africa and was widely rumoured to have died. 
Two obsessed fans set out to learn the man's true fate. I didn't know anything of Detroit or Rodriguez in 2001. Had I, perhaps my conversation with my temporary South African roommate would have differed. Had social media existed back then, perhaps I would have arrived imbued with expectations of what Detroit's ruined porn looks like, rather than being shocked into it. Perhaps I would have broadcast tasteless details of my travels, blow by blow. Even now, I want to understand and to talk about other places and people, but also don't want to be too much of a dickhead. In songwriting too, there's this balance, or attempted balance, between different forms of empathy, interest, versus minding one's own business. The same is true of the old carryover champion songs, now that Boa's passed away. In any case, Detroit has also become part of a Taylor Project song, made with a washing machine, about economic change and indifference. Somehow, it's also always about cars. One morning in Manchester I've never been there But I can picture it The kitchen scene The flowers growing in spite of it The kettle boiling like puberty Tell the girls to be In time for tea Outside there's boys in with no need to wear sunglasses staring back at me The post-industrial poster boys for a feeling that I sometimes have when I'm gazing up at power lines In a fading light That we are all Detroit We are all Detroit We will all be destroyed We will all be unemployed We are all Detroit Our stories are embroiled We will be reborn One morning Each morning the sun still shines And 
we will ask what's for breakfast Cheerios at night Served with poverty in excess in the bar tonight Is the unbending instinct which is not concerned with dignity There's more than one way to
Vinyl. Something of the opposite of social media. Vinyl records are an older technology, associated fondly with the tactile experience of the record weight and the sleeves and the album art. My family house had a large collection of 1960s and 1970s vinyl, highlights of which included Peter, Paul and Mary. We also had a short playing single of Greatest American Hero that we used to love not only for the lyrics, Believe it or not, it's just me, but also the small caterpillar on the label we would watch spinning around. By the 1990s, vinyls were considered anachronistic, supplemented by tape and later gradually replaced by CDs. By the late 2000s, they had something of a comeback, both as a retro format and as an indulgent medium for certain bands. Vinyl is unnecessary but appealing. To make vinyl records, you also have to master the audio differently and send it at any given point in time to whichever obscure location is operating a vinyl press. Can Coben made vinyls, I believe they were sent to somewhere like Czechoslovakia to be pressed, and a few of these quite beautiful objects remain in our shelves. Nowadays a few local companies, such as Zenith, cater to the urge to produce music on vinyl record. In 2022, vinyl album sales exceeded CDs for the first time since the late 1980s. Given the expense and fuss involved, the opportunity for Taylor Project to make a vinyl record came in the form of a split single with another so-inclined band, The Bone Folders. We each had one song, Denoli and Pokey's Pub, on one side of a 7-inch or short play record. We put the material together in late 2019 and had the records ready, I think about 200 of them, in time for our planned launch. Realistically, the main place someone buys something as niche as a vinyl record is at a launch gig. Our launch date was set for mid-2020. At a gig we played in March 2020, people spoke ominously of COVID and whether to come out to live shows. By mid-2020, this point was moot, as live shows were cancelled amidst successive lockdowns. Live music, however humble it was, in my life essentially stopped in 2020 and has only partially returned in the last year or so. The split single vinyls, including Pokey's Pub, are a hangover of that. To be fair, a handful of people ordered copies in the mail, but otherwise it's a rather large box in my cupboard.
stops, the traffic stops. Change machines and hidden clocks. Swirls in the carpet, handbag, straps on strangers' shoulders. Don't leave your kids in. speculation just how many people have CDs and CD players anymore, but they are certainly becoming less common. Over the past five or ten years, people, generalising here, and with the notable exception of middle-aged musicians, tend not to have CD players, except perhaps in old cars. As a result, depending on our level of audio puritanism and our confidence we could sell them, musicians I know often have hundreds of copies of earlier albums on CDs in boxes. Of some other CDs, we might only have two or three copies, and being duplicates, they may not even be playable anymore. One of the reasons CDs became less important is digital release of music, either directly through musician-oriented sites, notably Bandcamp, or through streaming services, most obviously Spotify. People increasingly access music through digital streaming and their phones, 
and devices, including stereos and cars, have changed to focus on Bluetooth and streaming, rather than a physical medium for music. Around 2018, we put together, on something of a whim, a retrospective of 10 years of Taylor Project songs, 2008 to 2018, The City in the Distance. We decided to remaster the songs and to put them out on CD, but hesitated at the idea of replication, minimum run of 500 CDs. We didn't want boxes of them hanging around. We duplicated it, I think, in 150 of them instead. And even then, I remember noting how the CD seemed to become more of a calling card or an odd piece of cardboard, rather than something people would or could actually listen to. Increasingly, I would give away rather than sell CDs. And even when I did so, people would apologetically ponder whether, I'm not sure where I can play this. Bandcamp, and to an extent SoundCloud, are musician-oriented digital platforms and very easy to understand. You upload your files and people can either listen a few times or pay to download them. We used to pay for a website DNS, but now it just goes to Bandcamp, which seems as permanent a record of Taylor Project's music as it is possible to have for now. Digital streaming services, however, are a different beast. Spotify and streaming became popular from around 2015 and fairly ubiquitous by around 2020. Spotify is how most people access music, but as a musician, you don't directly engage with the service. Instead, you pay to have your songs digitally released via an intermediary service of one form or another. It's a bit of a black box. For the last two Taylor Project CDs, I went through the process, and these now somehow magically exist on a host of platforms. Very occasionally, digital payments in the realm of sense are paid to us. For our older albums and best of back catalogue, Putting them on streaming services would be the best way of them finding new audiences, but I'd have to go back through various digital relabeling processes and pay money to intermediaries to do so, and I haven't been bothered yet. To the streaming world, our music prior to 2015 just doesn't exist. With YouTube, established in 2006, we have our own channel of film clips, which are now easy and fun to make at home, even if relatively rarely watched. There is also a weird digital version that the streaming services put up, and you have to be careful to tick the right box, or your own channel will be sued and not allowed to use your own music because the IP belongs to the digital distributor. To listeners, digital music can seem like a seamless reflection of music production, but there are always intermediaries and technologies at play. Putting your own stuff onto the internet is accessible to do, but also much more geared towards record labels and artists generating content with billions of views. Those who make music and play live in this streaming and post-COVID context have the dilemma of whether to do a digital-only release or to bother with physical medium like a CD or a vinyl. Some people still have a launch gig to launch a slip of paper with a download code, which to some local music enthusiasts is a bit, what am I going to do with this? People who take an interest in small bands are often exactly the sort of middle-aged people who still like physical CDs. There might only be 10 or maybe 50 of such people who would like to listen to music. Is it still worth printing CDs? There's the risk of being saddled with unwanted physical CDs, which seem hilariously outdated. But also, there's something about the material product and the different ways people relate to things that are encountered through incidental personal encounters rather than through aimless scanning of the internet. There are also differing norms, stated or unstated, about how community radio presenters access and program music. Some of them still prefer to get a CD. Others ask just for a digital link but are, in my experience, usually unlikely to follow up unless your promotional material is amazing. 
Live music and CDs went hand in hand in my life from around 2003 to 2016 or 2018. Sometime around then, CDs dropped off. In 2020, the live music part dropped off too. The COVID lockdowns were stifling for live music venues and for many musicians. Some musicians loved the home setup and digital audience. We did some film clips and new songs, but overall things lost place and momentum. Fewer people still came to gigs when lockdowns gradually lifted. For our last quote EP, the name is a throwback to another outdated format, we did a digital only release. This included the song Invisible Tower, a song in part about the glumness of how optimistic other people were about the COVID times. in disclaimers where they're not ashamed to hope Here are a couple of strangers I suppose they're in love I suppose they feel things they're supposed to but I wouldn't know about those See them on Valentine's evening They don't run, they go slow For they know the way to the tower While we hopelessly hold below For they know the way to the tower While we hopelessly hold below
yet mentioned the cloud, but I have several Dropbox and Google Drive accounts and Gmail accounts and others, and notionally these all back up my digital life to a cloud. Actually, a set of servers somewhere. But in putting this podcast together, I couldn't find copies of several audio files I had thought were stored on my cloud. I did find a lot of old work files that I have no interest in seeing again. And I regularly get threatening emails about one or another cloud server being out of space or being decommissioned, AARnet. I have about as much enthusiasm for cleaning these non-places out as I do for organising old boxes. At other times, I forget passwords or stop paying the subscription fees. At this point, I'm sure people out there are sermonising about how organised their own lives and files are. There are logical, methodical archivers out there, and we need them. I'm not one of them. My own things follow curious trails and are left in only the most vaguely defined piles. I'm not sure I'd want someone listening back. I'd rather take some skeletons out, leave some in, tell some stories and not others, even with old music. But I'm also not sure I'd like it thrown out. In the shift to digital, each new technology promises less physical stuff, less clutter, perhaps even a kind of digital longevity immune to chaos and decay. It's an illusion. Hard drives fall or fail to dusk. Discs become unreadable. CDs don't play. Phones don't charge or sync. Emails are purged behind the scenes. Text message too. Objects are lost. VHS and Betamax. Logins, website profiles are taken down or age. Social media falls out of favour. More music than you could ever listen to is uploaded each day, somewhere. A few major companies hold all these files, allegedly in perpetuity. A few days after his friend's funeral, Andrew and his cousin met up to listen to the old CD and make digital copies. They had to source an external CD drive and persuade it to work. I listened to them debating the origins of various recordings from the putative Deer Park garage and whether or not lyrics were disgusting or funny. I've listened to several of the songs again and again. Maybe the metaphor is that we are the hard drive, even if we want to be the cloud. Or maybe the metaphor is that the hard drive doesn't matter, and only the music or lyrics do. Or beyond that, the songs might only matter because of who they matter to. Some of these old songs still ring true, and their words somehow connect. The technology of how we record music as everything is the intermediary. Regardless, if people don't care, songs, like anything, disappear or become clutter. David Byrne writes about how he used to hoard LPs and CDs, but he has started getting rid of them, and quote, Music is becoming dematerialised, a state that is more truthful to its nature, I suspect. In that respect, he argues, maybe live music will become more valued. Quote, A century of technological innovation and the digitisation of music has inadvertently had the effect of emphasising its social function. He also argues that with the almost infinite possibilities of the internet, and music access. It's still striking how songs become popular with young people after being included in a specific context, like a TV show, notably Stranger Things. Music is important in context, not out of it. Functionally, the pool of music young people in the 2020s accesses might be smaller than that in the 1980s and 90s. Life, the negative entry machine, is what connects objects and fragments that otherwise are disconnected. They are only life for a short period. Even as the size of the digital world and cloud expands exponentially, there's that sense of decay. This next song, How We Grow Up, is a recent Taylor Project one, digital release only, based in part on a dream I had about a child in a room of strangers slowly realising that his parents had left on a train at night. 
Maybe one day he'd hear the sound of the train and remember that maybe that's a part of him that's gone. The lyrics feature other literary references to people forgetting, beginning with On the Road, when Jack Kerouac wakes in a hotel room in Iowa City and for 15 seconds cannot remember who he is. I woke up as the sun was reddening, and that was the one distinct time in my life, the strangest moment of all, when I didn't know who I was. I was far away from home, haunted and tired with travel, in a cheap hotel room I'd never seen, hearing the hiss of steam outside, and the creak of the old wood of the hotel, and the footsteps upstairs, and all the sad sounds. And I looked at the cracked high ceiling, and really didn't know who I was, for about 15 strange seconds. I wasn't scared. I was just somebody else, some stranger. And my whole life was a haunted life. The life of a ghost. I heard a song when I was still asleep. It felt like finding my old house keys. And it reminded me of on the road. When he wakes in a hotel in Iowa and tries to remember. Finding 
looks up at the cracked high ceilings He hears human voices They're down in the hallway There's a train in the distance And for 15 seconds he tries to remember Himself And that's how we grow up We don't remember That's how we grow up Finally, the hard drive. Listening to a song is one way of putting yourself into a place and time. Music is geography and is also about technology. Even over the course of the past few decades, different recording media have come and gone. Technology enables thousands or millions and billions of people to record their own songs. If you don't produce a CD or a digital release, or even if you do, you also store your audio files on hard drives or to USB flash drives, or I guess previously on floppy disks. I've got more than a few old flash drives lying around in boxes. My current computer only reads USB drives courtesy of an adapter. Hard drives and other storage devices more often store the notionally unfinished versions of things. The live recordings, the demos, versions someone intended to revisit one day. Sending these to the cloud is the dream of immortality, at least for the more organised amongst us. It's all there for us to return to. Andrew loaned his Mac computer with the early 2000s carryover champions recordings to his friend Bo somewhere between 7 and 10 years ago. His friend intended to do something with the old songs. Some he apparently did and dreamed up new schemes with them. After years of being in other well-known bands, Bo was in Graveyard Train, and touring and then the COVID years, the status of the hard drive seemed to slip from being a work in progress to an object in purgatory. More than a few times I goaded Andrew about whether he'd ever get it back, a question not only of music recordings, but of several years of unbacked up digital photos. A handful of Polaroid photos, some from a Gillian Walsh gig around 2003, have survived on walls from that time, but other years of digital photos have effectively vanished. The Shins recorded the album with new slang, O Inverted World, at home. The singer James Mercer apparently became a hermit making the original recordings. I once read how he was heartbroken when the original master files were stolen in a home break-in. Despite the song being widely reproduced, the original audio still had practical and personal value. Quoting from Wikipedia, The original mastered audio files for both this album as well as its follow-up, Shoots Too Narrow, which was stored on a HP pavilion in Mercer's home, were stolen in 2003. However, this didn't affect the ability to remaster the album because he still had access to the original masters stored on digital audio tapes by the mastering company and only made it impossible to do remixes, save for new slang, the relevant file of which was preserved on the DVD Mercer made. Even for musicians who are well known and signed, obviously, there's a certain weight to the early versions and dependence on different technologies, whether hard drives or master DVDs or audio tapes. The music you make is much like your life and your memories. You can't remember it, how it fits together, it gets muddled. It runs the risk of being lost entirely or of forming repetitive and oppressive clutter in your shed, in your mind or on the cloud. 
The amount of material and digital stuff produced out there mounts by the day. Some of our past is embarrassing to us, sometimes because of hindsight and sometimes by virtue of its outdated technology. Some of us collect and hoard the old tapes and CDs and players, and some of us lose track of where they are and would rather not think about it. The surviving Carryover Champion CD and the hard drive that is apparently in the house of Andrew's friend Bo, who has since passed away from neuron disease, have come to seem almost overbearingly metaphorical, at least to me. Motor neuron disease is an absurdly cruel way to die, to be trapped into a physical decline over months or years, belying the life and mind within. Bo was a person particularly overfull of life and schemes. The Carryover Champion songs were recorded in a garage in Deer Park in the early 2000s, saved to a hard drive, never played to an audience. They were live performances and considered rough, unfinished versions or live demos, but now they're the definitive versions they will have to do. In one of the songs, Lake McCohen, Bo sings, Some words never mean what we say, but at least they were ours. The Lake McCohen song seems to be about the ill-fated dam or artificial lake by that name near Uroa that was started in the 1960s but was always too shallow and which tended to evaporate quickly and form dangerous algal blooms. Its creation through the diversion of water from the Murray River famously resulted in hundreds of stranded dead trees, a ghostly sight for people like Bo who often passed by while driving to the Alpine area of Victoria. Apparently he used to hole himself up in a caravan there, writing songs, as always. By the early 2000s, the dam was about to be decommissioned. It has since been renamed the Winton Wetlands, and its restoration into a wetland area is expected to take about 100 years. That artificial lake's artificial life was roughly the same length as Bo's. His lyrics about floating and peeling back branches seem to be about the failed lake and its ephemerality but also about his own travels. We can't ask him now. Just listen back. At the start of the recording, you can hear Bo shout out with his characteristic flair, Are you ready? Wildlife. But things fall apart. It's scientific. Or, as in this song, it's not your problem, it's mine. And if you listen closely at the end, you can hear Bo say, I didn't know if we should make the end longer. That's all. Wind is whistling through the shade With the hammer down I'm gonna float while I can Blow on through your roar And on to Lake Mokoi I could drive like this forever Through the snowbody Sleeping eyes 
Some words never 